before we get started, I guess I want to give a picture of what's going on, okay? Because we're going to be looking at the Gospels for a few weeks. And you may know these things, but just in case you don't, I want to make sure that uh, you have an idea of why the Gospels are different and what's going on with them, okay? And it's going to be kind of a challenge to kind of get everything in a chronological order because they weren't really written chronologically. They were written in a manner that was compartmentalizing ideas and events and teachings so that people could, you know, they just didn't have a Bible they could go grab. So everything was packaged in a way that people would be able to remember, people would be able to use. And so some of the dates and stuff are a little sketchy. So this is not absolute chronological order, okay? We're, we're kind of going to do the best we can, all right? But when we look at the Gospels, we've got four, right? And we have four authors. And there's differences within the Gospels, not in, not in teaching, not in doctrine, but the way some things are worded or things that are included and things that are not included. And so they're similar, but there's differences. Why is that? Okay, well, number one, of course, we've got four authors, right? We've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We've got four authors, four audiences, with four specific perspectives on Jesus that they're showing to their audiences, okay? So that's why there's some things here and some things not here. Some things that are in Mark that are not in John. Some that are in Luke that are not in Matthew. It's because of who they're writing to and the things about Christ that they're showing. So when we look at this, it's kind of like if you looked at a pyramid, if you looked at only one side of that pyramid, you're only going to see one face of it. So the four Gospels give us the four sides of Jesus so we get a better perspective of who he is. All right? Does that make sense? Okay? It's, it's a big picture. So Matthew was a disciple of Jesus. He's the Levi. Okay? His name was Levi. And uh, he was a tax collector. And he was a Jew writing to Jews, okay? So when we look at Matthew, there is a lot of prophecy, a lot of referring back to the prophets of the Old Testament because Matthew is trying to press home the point that Jesus is the Messiah that Israel's been waiting for, okay? That's his audience, and that's what he's focusing on. Yes, the death, the crucifixion, and all of that, but the, the idea that he's wrapping it around is that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Then you've got Mark, okay? He's also known as John Mark, and he ministered with Paul and Barnabas and Peter, okay? And a lot of scholars think that really what Mark did was write Peter's account of the gospel narrative, okay? Because Mark wasn't there, but Peter was, and he did a lot with Peter. So it's speculated that just because of the things that are focused on and brought out in Mark's gospel, 
that Peter was the main source that Mark pulled from, all right, because they were companions. And the focus of Mark is the servanthood of Jesus. Luke, we'll get to in a moment, and we have John, all right? John was the other one who was an apostle of Jesus, and John was a Jew, and he was writing to a universal audience, all right? So Matthew was to the Jews, Mark was to Gentiles, specifically Roman Gentiles, then John was writing to a Gentile and Jewish audience. It's more of a universal. So he touches on different things to kind of bring the whole group in. But his focus is on the deity of Jesus. And then we have Dr. Luke. All right. So if you're in Luke chapter one, verse one, let's begin there. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to complete a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. All right. Luke was a doctor. He was a ministry companion of Paul and others within the early church, the other disciples and those who were laboring with them. And he was a Gentile and he was writing to Theophilus, who was a Gentile. And do you notice, this is, you know, we kind of blow through these things, but they're details that are very, very important. Do you notice that he says, it seemed good to me to give you an account of the eyewitnesses and the things that we've seen and been experienced and stuff so that you, Theophilus, can have some good foundation for what you have put your faith in, basically, all right? You're believing in Jesus, Theophilus, so I'm going to give you the facts about who Jesus is and what Jesus did and what the eyewitnesses saw and experienced so that you've got some concrete stuff to rest your faith upon. And this is the first thing that we need to remember. Christianity and I've said this before, it's not a religion, okay? Christianity is a relation. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed cherub, guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed historical evidence of the things that are in the Gospels. Okay? Luke was a fantastic 
historian. And he's given, okay, in, in the reign of so-and-so and in the time where such-and-such was governor and this person was doing this. So there's a lot of dates that can be anchored onto because of the way that Luke was so meticulous in his historical writing, all right? So this is the first thing that I want you to take from this. If you're a Christian, you are believing in something that really happened, someone who really lived, a resurrection that happened, a crucifixion that happened, a redemption that happened, okay? So when people say, well, you know, you can believe what you want to believe, and I'll believe what I want to believe, it's all the same. It's not, okay? Let's, let's look at the historical narrative for any religion that's out there, okay? It's not there. But we can look at real events, real people, real things concerning our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, all right? So, is that clear? Our faith is not blind. Our faith is built on fact, historical events like the resurrection. If we don't have the resurrection, Paul said, we are to be pitied because we're just believing a lie. Jesus died and that was the end of it. But he didn't die and that was the end of it. He rose from the dead. And he loves us and he's our intercessor right now, right here today. That's awesome. Okay, so that's the first thing to keep in mind. Now, let's jump down, and here's, here's the, I'm going to really go through this history quickly, all right, because there's a lot to cover, as always. But here we are 400 years later. The prophet Malachi has finished the final declaration from God to the people of Israel, about the coming of Elijah and that he would come as the forerunner of Messiah. He would make the path ready. And then the Lord did not speak to Israel prophetically since that time. All right. Now here's Zechariah. It's his turn to serve in the temple, offering the incense before the Lord. All right. And the prayers of the people before the Lord. If we go back to Chronicles, you remember how David put together all of the different teams that were going to work in the temple and the rotations, and on this time you do this, and on this time you do that because there were so many priests? Well, it just so happened that it's Zechariah's turn. He's up to bat. You think that was just an accident? I don't think so. So here's Zechariah. He's old. His wife's older. They can't have kids. Anytime that happens, there's a good chance that God's got something he's going to do because he does the impossible in impossible situations so people know it's him. So here's this barren couple. Zachariah's in the temple. He's offering the incense, and Gabriel shows up. And Gabriel says, hey, you and your wife Elizabeth are going to have a baby. And Zechariah's like, we got a problem. She's barren and we're old. How can I know this is true? And you know the story probably. Gabriel says, you know what? I'm Gabriel. I stand before the living God. I'm his messenger. You're not going to say a word until that baby's born. 
okay? And Elizabeth might have been really happy about that. I don't know. You know, your husband not talking and just listening. All he can do is listen, you know, for nine months or more. So he gets this. And the thing that Gabriel gives him is Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Your son will come in the power and the spirit of Elijah, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children. We pick right up where we left off, 400 years later, all right? And so, of course, Elizabeth conceives. Six months later, Gabriel comes visiting Mary. And he says to her, Greetings. This is chapter 1 of Luke, verse 28. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Stop. This is the next thing I want you to remember. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. O favored one. There are only two other times in the New Testament that that word favored or favored one is used, graced one, graced of God, okay? The next one after this is found in the book of Acts. When the Holy Spirit directs that Paul and Silas go out into the mission field and it says that they had favor from the Lord or they were graced of the Lord to go and do the work of the ministry. The other time it's found is in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6. And guess who it's talking about? Being favored of God. You. You. The people who have Jesus Christ as their Savior, the believer in Christ, has favor from the Lord. So when you think of yourself and your relationship with God, the thing that Gabriel said to Mary Oh, favored one, beloved of the Lord, is the same thing he says to you. You're his child. You're his bride. You're his temple. You are favored of the living God. Isn't that a cool place to be? I think so. All right, so this is how this is unfolding. So it's Mary, this is what's going to happen. You're going to have a child. You're a virgin. Mary's like, we know the story. We got an issue here. Sounds kind of like what Zechariah was saying to Gabriel earlier, you know, and it's like Gabriel's kind of used to this kind of thing maybe. You know, yeah, I know it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And I love what he says. By the way, your cousin Elizabeth is in her sixth month. If you're wondering if God can do this, Mary, here's some encouragement for you. You know your cousin, your older cousin, much older cousin, who can't have kids? She's in her sixth month. God's moving in her life. And God's going to move in your life. And so Mary goes and she lives with Zechariah and, uh, and Mary, uh, Elizabeth for about three months until it's ready for John to be born. Okay? So God's moving and... You know, she, she visits Elizabeth, and when she gets to the house, the Holy Spirit comes upon Elizabeth, the Holy Spirit comes upon John, John's doing a breakdance inside of uh, Elizabeth's womb, he's so excited because, hey, 
you know, the Messiah's here. And it's just cool. He's like this little in the womb baby is rejoicing over the Messiah that he's going to be the forerunner of. That's crazy. And so this is happening. And so Elizabeth is prophesying and Mary is prophesying and God is moving. So it's like for 400 years, God has not spoken prophetically to his people. And then in one shot, the floodgates just roll. And it's not prophets that are speaking. It's Zechariah, a priest. It's Elizabeth. It's Mary, just this, this teenage gal from a little podunk town called Nazareth. You know? And God's moving. God's going to be speaking through uh, Simeon. He's just a guy who loved the Lord and was on fire for God. And God said, you're going to see my Messiah. There was a prophetess named Anna a widow for decades, and God speaks through her. God is letting people know that Jesus is coming. And it's beautiful. So all of this is going on, and then um, what ends up happening after this is, of course, John is born, and as soon as uh, he's born, they say, okay, we're going to name Zechariah after his dad, and Elizabeth's like, no way, it's John. You don't have anybody in your family named John. It's going to be Zechariah. No, it's John. So they take, uh, they go to Zechariah. It's like, what's his name? John, or uh, Zechariah can't talk. So he writes on a tablet, his name is John. And as soon as he does that, he can speak. And the first words out of his mouth is prophecy concerning John and Jesus. That's so cool. So all this is happening, and then Jesus is born. And we won't, you know, every Christmas, we know the story of Jesus, okay, being born. So we won't get into that. But he's born. Then they, they go to Bethlehem. He's born in a manger. Then they go to Jerusalem on the eighth day to circumcise Jesus and to dedicate him in the temple Simeon shows up, he's prophesying, Anna shows up, she's prophesying, and Mary's just holding these things in her heart, and God's on the move. So that's kind of the first chapter, if you will, of, of New Testament history there. And then at this point, I want to refer to John chapter 1, the first 17 verses. We're not going to read them. We know John 1, 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And if you've been in my class before, you know that the Greek does not say, and the Word was God, okay? What it literally says is, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and God was the Word. It's very emphatic that God, the, you know, the eternal God is, in fact, this little baby packaged in flesh. And he came and he dwelt among us, John says. The word there for dwelt among us is to pitch his tent. He took on a bodily tent, a temporary dwelling place, 
And you have God living in the tabernacle in the midst of his people, right? It was a tent. Now you have God in a tent of flesh living amongst his people in Jesus. And it's all tied together. So John gives us that deity side. Hey, this is who this is. This is God in flesh. Matthew refers to it as it's being quoted of Isaiah. His name shall be Emmanuel, which is what? God with us. So that point is being driven home. Isaiah, Matthew, John, Mark, Luke, they're all driving that home. This is God in the flesh. And so what I want us to do now is to go over to Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to jump two years forward, okay? And this is chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For he, we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. So it is written by the prophet, this is Micah, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. All right. So the reason why I say two years later is because when the Magi come, they come to a house in Bethlehem. So they went to Jerusalem, they dedicated Jesus, then they went back to Bethlehem. That was the hometown of, of Joseph's family line, okay? So they go back, now they're in a house, and it's not baby Jesus, it's the word toddler Jesus, okay? So he's not a baby anymore. He's, you know, crawling and walking around and everything. He's older. And we also know this because when Herod has the baby boys killed, it's two years and younger, all right? So we know just by the language that Jesus is older, all right? So when the Magi come and they go to the king, hey, we're looking for the king. And Herod's not happy, okay? You don't tell a king you're looking for the real king. And it says that Herod was upset and all Israel with him. It was said of Herod that it was better to be his pig than it was to be his son. He killed anybody who he had any kind of fear of, of them taking his throne. Here comes baby Jesus, all right? So... There's three things I want us to consider with this. When we talk to people about the Lord, about the King of Kings, there's three attitudes in these three groups. We have the Magi. They hear of Jesus, and they pursue Jesus, and they worship Jesus, okay? They give him the rightful place as king. These are kingly men that are coming to worship him. And they humble themselves before the king of kings. 
you've got Herod who is adamant about ruling his own life and his own little world. And he is going to fight anybody who's going to interfere with that. And there are people who have that mindset. So when they hear the gospel, they are adamant to fight that message because they are determined to maintain the rulership of their own lives. And then you have people like the priests and the scribes. They knew the word of God. They knew the prophecies. But when the Magi come, they don't go, really? Hey, let's grab our camels and we'll go with you. Because this is important. No. They don't do anything. Yeah, here's the facts, King. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. That's where he's at. They don't jump on board to go after the king of kings. They're afraid of Herod. Some people will not follow Jesus because they're afraid of man. Or they were also very comfortable in the position that they had. They had a lot of power, a lot of comfort, a lot of strength and influence in society. And they didn't need Jesus muddying the waters. I like my status quo. I like things the way they are. I don't need Jesus. And we hear that so often. So there's three attitudes the one who is adamantly opposed to Jesus Christ and will fight, those who are apathetic concerning Jesus because they want to keep things status quo or they're afraid of people, and then those who will pursue Jesus and yield to him. So we see those three attitudes compartmentalized here. Now, boom, we go about two decades, a little more into the future. John is now baptizing and preaching. And Jesus is getting ready to come on the scene as well. Chapter 3, verse 1 of the book of Matthew. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. What's the first word that John says in his message that we have recorded in Scripture? Repent. Okay? Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Again, there's more prophecy. And the people were coming and they were confessing their sins. When you see the gospel being preached, the first word that John says is repent. The first word that Jesus says when he begins ministering is repent. When Jesus uh, has risen from the dead, repent. Peter, when he's preaching after the day of Pentecost, repent. Paul, repent. Repentance, confession, baptism are critical for our salvation. Okay, and we'll look at this a little bit later in John, but we tell people, hey, you have to believe in Jesus. You have to believe in Jesus. Yes, we do. But to believe in Jesus means that we have to have some, if we believe in Jesus, we're going to act in line with that belief. Okay, 
when I believed that Jennifer was the one for me, all right, and I was, she, she was going to be my wife, I followed after that belief by proposing to her and committing my life to her, okay? I gave my life to Jennifer. She gave her life to me for life. We had a belief and we acted upon that belief. When we repent, it means to do an about face, okay? If I need to go to the Dells and I go down to 12 and I hang a, a left, okay, and I'm going south, and you say to me, hey, 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 no, you need to go to the Dells, not, you're going toward Madison, okay? And I go, oh yeah, I, I believe you. I believe, I believe that it's the other way. But I just keep driving to Madison. Do I really believe you? Maybe I do. And I just don't care. Or maybe I really don't believe you. It's like, I know better yet, whatever, you know. If I really believe you, I'm going to repent. I'm going to find the place where I can do a U-turn and I'm going to go north on 12 because that's the direction I need to go. Repent means about face, okay? And confessing sin. When we come to Christ, we are confessing, we are agreeing with him that what we are doing is sin and we need him to forgive us of those sins. We need his grace, his mercy. And so when the people were getting baptized, that was a physical manifestation of repentance. They're like, okay, I'm hearing the message. Messiah's coming. So I need to turn from the direction I'm going and I need to get ready for Messiah. I need to turn to Jesus. All right. Baptism was not a new concept. There were ceremonial washings when you were going to go worship at the temple and you ceremonially washed yourself so you could be clean before the Lord, but it didn't really clean you. It was just a symbol of where your heart was at, okay? But when a Jew thought of baptism specifically, that was what happened when a Gentile would convert to Judaism, okay? So when you were going to become a Jew and follow the teachings of Moses, follow the law and the God of Israel, you would go and get baptized. And the Gentile life was going to be turned away from, and you were going to be dead to that life, and you were going to turn to the law and Moses and follow him, follow the God of Israel, okay? So you had this expression of where your heart was. You were doing it about face. So for the people getting baptized now, and these are Jews, they're turning from the old covenant to the new covenant in Christ. The law can't save me. Messiah can. So I'm not going to try to keep the law in my own power. I'm going to turn to the one that the law points to and trust him for my salvation. So this was radical, okay? And it's so important because we say to people, hey, just believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. And there's a lot of people who say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. But 
it's not followed up by a life that's following Jesus. It's like, we, we need to ask ourselves, do you really believe? Are you just doing an academic acceptance of this? Okay, we'll get to that with Nicodemus. And then we also see where Jesus comes to be baptized. And down in verse uh, 14, it says, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for all to fulfill all righteousness. This is incredible. So here's Jesus. Picture this. He's coming to be baptized by John the Baptist. This is a bunch of people who are here to repent of their sin. Jesus had no sin to repent of. What's this righteousness to be fulfilled? Isaiah chapter 53 says that he would be numbered among the transgressors. He would identify himself with the sinners. And he would bear the sins of many. And I think it's James Montgomery Boyce, I believe it's him that said it. He said, when you looked out at that crowd and Jesus was standing there, Jesus was going to look like just another sinner out there being baptized for sin. He would have looked no different. He didn't have a halo. He didn't glow. He was just another person out at the Jordan River identifying with this group of people. That's incredible to me. So there's Jesus identifying with us. He has become flesh and blood. He's walking in our shoes. He is suffering. He goes through the things that we go through and he identifies with us so that he can be our Passover lamb and die for our sins. That's so beautiful. And so after Jesus was baptized, it says the Spirit, you know, the Spirit came upon him and led him out into the wilderness for 40 days. And then Satan came and tempted him, right? Hey, since you're the Son of God and you're about to die and you're starving, why don't you make these stones turn to bread? You can do that. Just use your power for yourself. And Jesus quotes out of Deuteronomy, man does not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so Satan hits him again. Hey, why don't you just throw yourself off of the the temple pinnacle? Everybody will see the angels are going to catch you because the Bible says he's not going to let your foot be dashed upon a stone. So, hey, it'll be a great show. People know who you are. Hey, go for it. Jesus says, no, you don't put God to the test. Deuteronomy again. And then Satan comes again and says, hey, I'll tell you what, you want to be the king of all this stuff? You bow down and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. You'll be the king. Just worship me. Jesus responds again out of Deuteronomy. You have no other God before me. No. He was tempted just like us and not just there. But he was tempted. He knows what it's like to be in our shoes. So all of this stuff has transpired before Jesus goes into his ministry. And now turn over to John chapter 1. And we're going to look at the launch. 
chapter 1, verse 29. So Jesus has come out of the wilderness now. He's back in that area where John is. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So now John is testifying of Jesus' ministry and who he is. He is the Lamb of God. He is the ultimate Passover who is going to take away the sin itself. Not sins, the sin itself, the root, the overshadowing, overarching problem with humanity. He's going to take the sin of the world upon himself. And then, verse 34, And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. He is the Lamb of God. He is the Son of God. He is the Passover sacrifice. He is God in the flesh, giving himself. Zechariah, remember, they will look upon me, God is speaking, whom they have pierced, right? So this is all coming together here. And so here now is Andrew and John. They're following John the Baptist. They're disciples of his. And they're hearing this testimony, and they go, hey, we're, we're going to go with him. And John's like, go for it, okay? Go for it. And so they follow Jesus because of the testimony of John the Baptist. Andrew goes, tells his brother Simon, later known as Peter, okay? Hey, you got to meet this guy. Well, then Jesus comes across Philip, says, I want you to follow me. Philip goes and gets Nathaniel, and Nathaniel joins the group. And what's cool about this is you see the witnessing, the sharing of the gospel of Jesus by different people, different ways. John speaking, Andrew and John believe and follow. Andrew goes and shares with Simon. Jesus directly calls Philip. Philip goes and tells Nathaniel. Nathaniel's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Come and see. Wow. And so God uses us in different ways to share the good news of Christ. Okay? And so they're following, and they go down to Cana, right? We know about this. They go down to Cana, the first miracle, all right? Jesus turns water into wine. And we won't go into all the stuff with that, but that's the first miracle. And then they go back to Capernaum. Jesus is doing miracles. And then they go to Jerusalem for the Passover. All right. This is the first Passover that Jesus will go to as Messiah. All right. So Jesus goes. He's got just a few of the disciples at this point. And they're following him, but he has not called them to ministry yet. Okay. They're following, but he hasn't said, okay, this is, this is what I'm giving you to do. You're going to be fishers of men. This is going to happen a little bit later, okay? But they're following him. And Jesus goes in, and the first thing he does is cleanse the temple. My house shall be called a house of prayer, and you've made it a robber's den. That was mentioned before by the prophets, okay? So Jesus is cleaning house. They hate him. They don't want to have anything to do with him. They want to kill him. We'll see that later. 
But then chapter 3 of John, we know John 3.16, okay? I want us to look at John chapter 3, verse 1, and we're going to go through verse 3. And then we'll jump down to verse 14. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. All right, so they knew things were happening. Jesus was doing stuff in Capernaum and up in the Galilee, and they knew it. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is another thing we don't hear about when it comes to being saved. We hear you have to believe in Jesus. We don't hear you must be born again. This is important. Okay? The Jews believed in Messiah. They believed Messiah was coming. They just didn't believe Jesus. And this was really driven home to me several years ago when I was watching a sports match, okay? Yes, I learned the power of the gospel watching sports. But it was the All-Ireland Hurling Championships, okay? I won't get into what that is, okay? But it's the Super Bowl of Ireland, okay? And I'm watching this thing, and you know how in sports events, and you don't see it so much today, I think, but you'll see people with signs, John 3.16, John 3.16, right? Well, I'm watching this match, and there's somebody in the end zone with a big yellow sign that says, John 3.3. And I'm like, John 3.3? What's John 3.3? I should know what John 3.3 is. I know what 3.16 is. So I grab my Bible. Oh, you must be born again. And then it clicked. Ireland is a religious nation. Catholicism is there. Protestantism is there. Okay? Deep religious roots. You say to somebody there, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will have everlasting life and will not perish. And people will go, absolutely right. Yes. But they are not born again. So this person is proclaiming to them, you have to be born again. This is a term we don't hear in today's church very often. When you believe on Christ, you put him as the Lord of your life, which means you've repented and you've confessed, you've turned from the old life and turned to Jesus. When you get baptized, right? We go into the water, the old life is dead, we rise anew in Christ. It's a new beginning, a new life. And we are born of the Holy Spirit. There are a lot of people in church today who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They believe he died on a cross. And they are not born again. There are people who fill pulpits who are not born again. This is something that when we tell people about Coming to Christ, yes, it is believe on the Son of God. What is to believe in Jesus? It is to repent, it is to confess, 
It is to follow him. And when we do, the Holy Spirit comes in and dwells us and we are born again, spiritually born. Okay? It's not religion. It's not just head knowledge. So sharing the fact that we have to be born again is so important. So keep that in mind, okay? You have to be born again. Nicodemus was, you know, a teacher of teachers. And he didn't understand this. He didn't understand the need to be born of the Spirit. Jesus taught him. And then... Uh, what I want us to finish up with is where Jesus is done in Jerusalem, he's going out and his disciples are baptizing and then they're heading back up to the Galilee. And it says in chapter 4, verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. Okay? Now, the Jews hated the Samaritans. They had nothing to do with the Samaritans. The Samaritans were the descendants of the people that Nebuchadnezzar had sent into the northern region of Israel, the northern kingdom, to try to get the Jews there assimilated and lose their identity and everything, okay? So for the, the pure Jews who had come out of Judea, the second kingdom, all right, they looked upon the, the Samaritans as half-breeds, and they were nothing. They were dogs in their mind, okay? And so it's whenever they had to go to the region of the Galilee, they would go around the area of the Samaritans. They would not step foot in their territory. It says that Jesus had to. Why? He had an appointment with the Samaritan woman. She was at Jacob's well, in the heat of the day because she was an outcast as far as the Jews were concerned and she was an outcast from her own people. She'd been married five times, living with the sixth guy. Jesus called her on it, but not to condemn, but to reveal her sin, her need for Savior. And it's the first time Jesus actually says that he is the Messiah. And he says it to this outcast. And she goes, hmm. And she goes back to her hometown. And she tells the people, hey, um, I think this guy might be the Messiah. He told me everything that I've ever done. And they're like, really? Okay. And they come out. Now look at this. Chapter 4, verse 39. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. What was that testimony, ma'am? He told me everything I ever did. Did she go to an evangelism class? No. Are those bad? No, they're not. Okay, I'm not dissing that. Did she go to seminary? No, she didn't. I'm not dissing seminary. Had she been a believer for like a few years and really had the Bible under her belt and she knew what she was doing? No. I'm not dissing that either. Was she perfect? Nuh-uh. All right? All she had was, this is what Jesus did for me. I think he's the guy. And they believed because of her testimony. 
don't think that you have to have a Bible degree to tell somebody what Jesus has done in your life. And I'm not talking about even just how you were born again, but what's Jesus doing in your life today? What did he do today? What did he do yesterday? When you go to work tomorrow and people go, hey, how was your weekend? Is there something where you could say, oh, let me tell you what the Lord did for me? Really? Yeah, it was so cool. Simple testimony. They believed her simple testimony. This is what Jesus did for me. And then it says in verse 42, uh, so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The shift, okay? We heard what you said we believed, but we spent time with him and we know now, okay? And that's the thing. People come to Christ in that faith. I believe what I hear. But then as we get to know Jesus more, then we go, oh, I know. I know this is true. I know this is right. And that's the way the gospel works. And actually, I said to finish up with that, but a couple other thoughts. Chapter 5, Jesus is healing on the Sabbath. And he's making himself equal with God, okay? And remember, John is pushing this, this concept, helping people understand. Verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because now they've gone back down to Jerusalem. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God, Okay? In the Greek, the way this is worded for uh, breaking and calling, the English doesn't bring it over very well. It's in the present active. So it's, he kept on healing on the Sabbath. It's like he knew, you know, it just messed with them. So he was always healing on the Sabbath and it ticked them off. You're breaking the law. You're breaking the Sabbath. And he was always calling God his father and always making himself equal with God. And they hated him for it. And they wanted to kill him. So we have the woman's testimony. We have John's testimony, the Lamb of God, the Son of God. And Jesus gives three other testimonies in chapter uh, 5, verses 30 on down through uh, 40. He mentions John. Okay, but then he says, the works that I do testify of me, okay, the works, the Father, at baptism, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, okay, so the works show that he is the Son of God, God incarnate, God says that, and the scriptures say that. So John has given his testimony, this woman, Samaritan woman, newly born again, well, not born again because the Holy Spirit hadn't been given, but she's following Jesus. She gives hers, and Jesus gives three other areas that testify of him. Forty-seven times John uses the word testify or testimony, okay? Witness, okay? It's a legal term. 
So he's bringing into this fact that this is legal testimony of who Jesus is, God incarnate. So keep these things in mind, all right? What we believe is not blind faith or religion. We put our faith in a real person who is alive and well, attested to by eyewitnesses who gave their very lives, supporting their witness, their testimony. The word witness is martyr. They died for the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and is the Son of God. Okay? We have the facts of who Jesus is. We need to be born again. Our testimony of who Jesus is doesn't have to be complicated. Just tell people what Jesus is doing in your life. And understand that it's in Christ and Christ alone that we have hope of salvation. There is no other name. And we live in a time where the churches proclaim that you can be saved or even don't need to be saved, just be a good person, believe in God, be sincere, and you'll get to go to heaven. That's not what Jesus gives us as an option. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except for him.